I'm Leah Carey, and this is Good Girls Talk About Sex. This is a place to share conversations with all sorts of women about their experience of sexuality. Before we get started, I want to tell you this. These are unfiltered conversations between adult women talking about sex. If anything about the previous sentence offends you, turn back now. And if you're looking for a trigger warning, you're not going to get it from me. I believe that you are stronger than the trauma you have experienced. I have faith in your ability to deal with the things that upset you. Sound good? Let's start the show. In today's episode, we'll meet Jesse Neeland, a 31-year-old, cisgendered, white woman who is bisexual, monogamous, and currently single. While many women use pseudonyms to protect their privacy when appearing on this podcast, Jesse is using her real name because she is passionate about helping women to understand their bodies and their sexuality. You can find her online at jessienealand.com. I'm so pleased to introduce Jesse. I am so excited to introduce Jesse Neeland, who I have been working with for much of the past year, and she is a big reason that I was able to do as much as I have done in terms of sexual exploration and um, to come through it on the other side in as good mental and emotional shape as I have. Jesse is a body image coach. And when I first started working with her, it was for body image, but we very quickly transitioned into the realm of sex and how, um, at first, how body image played into sex. But then as time went on, she really supported me in ways that I couldn't even have imagined in terms of my sexual journey and just exploring and learning to be okay with myself as a sexual person. So I am thrilled beyond, beyond to be able to talk to Jesse today. Jesse, welcome. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yay. And I'm excited. I mean, we've spent most of a year talking about me. I'm excited <laughs> to spend a little bit of time talking about you. <laughs> right. It'll be a little bit of a reversal here. Yeah. So Jesse, the first question that I like to ask everybody who I talk with is, what is your first memory of sexual desire? That's a good question because I feel like it really depends on how we define sexual desire. Mm. Uh, I mean, I was one of those kids who masturbated before I have memory. You know what I mean? Like I don't remember a time I didn't have sexual urges or desires. Um, I certainly remember crushing on boys when I was so young, but like, of course, that isn't really exactly sexual at that point, not in the adult sense that we think of it. So um, I guess I don't know. I, I don't remember there being like a particular threshold at which those those desires switched into like a truly adult sexuality. But I feel like I've had sexual desires as long as I have memory. Hmm. I 
do know some things about you because I've watched your TEDx talks um, and we've talked a little bit about the fact that you experienced some inappropriate and unwanted advances in your young life. Would you like to talk about that a little bit in terms of how that affected your experience of sexual desire? Yeah. So like I said, I had always had these crushes. I'd always had, I loved attention and there's no way I can really put it other than um, there. There's it just it felt good to me to have male attention and the attention of boys even before I was old enough for any of that to be sexual. Um, when I was seven, uh, the older brother of a girl that I stayed over night with um, sexually assaulted me, and so that experience certainly put new language and like thoughts to what it meant to want attention from boys because he and I had had like what I would now call like a flirtatious sort of banter. I mean, I was seven. It wasn't really flirtation, but you know, it was just like, God, it feels so good. He was so nice to me and so charming and cute. And then, you know, later in the night he wanted things and I was like, well, we were all having a great time. So maybe this is just sort of what follows that. Um, and so I would say that it, it definitely, it labeled for me that my desire for attention came with a price tag. Oh, wow. Yeah. I think that it, it, it's, it gave me the context of sexuality moving forward that said that this, this need I have to be paid attention to, which I did for sure before that day is like the, it's going to have ex certain sexual expectations and that that wasn't even totally off base. It's not like, you know, I didn't like him. It, I just didn't know what we were doing or know why I had to do it. But like, I did like him. I wanted, I wanted his attention. So I think that it, it shifted the context for me about what desire felt like to be like, oh, if I want someone's attention, I have to be sexual with them. Hmm. How old was the boy? I'm not sure. I would say early teens, but I'm, I don't really know. So a fair bit older than you. Oh yeah, definitely older. Yeah. Wow. And so as you, I mean, that happened when you were seven, as you went through puberty and sort of the hormones started pumping the way that they do for young teenage girls, was your assumption that in order to have a boy's attention, that means I have to be sleeping with him? not sleeping with necessarily, but like engaged in, in sort of a sexual context. Yes. So like, even if my role in an exchange was chased, you know, like maybe it was that I, I presented my body to him in a sexual way, um, which is why body image started to become such a thing when I, when my body was changing and I became aware of myself in that way, it was like, Okay, so in order to play my role right, in order to get what I need, the attention that I want, I have to suck my stomach in and pop my hip out and, you know, do all these things that girls learn to do to be sexy um, because that is my job. That's my role. And how much of that was a really um, conscious calculus for you? And how much of it do you think you just absorbed? It's hard to say because I've spent so much of my life, you know, in the last decade or whatever, analyzing it. 
Um, <laughs> but I, I genuinely think more of it was conscious than you might imagine. It wasn't conscious and informed the way it is now, but it wasn't unconscious either. It wasn't like, it wasn't autopilot. You know, I, I really thought about it. I would look at myself in the mirror and pose. And when I was finally allowed to wear makeup, I practiced putting it on always with mm -hmm. it in mind that um, I wanted male attention and that this is how you got it. And and even even when I judged myself for that, even when it felt really dark to me, like there's something wrong with me that I want it this badly, um, I still was, I was still doing it pretty consciously. Hmm. And how did it feel when you actually got the male attention? Did it feel satisfying and fulfilling? Yeah, it did. It did. I mean, <laughs> like, Compared to what I now consider satisfying and fulfilling, no, but <laughs> but at the time, absolutely, it was it was thrilling. It was um, yeah, it was satisfying. It made me feel very successful because I knew that I I was doing it right. You know, mm. I got the male attention that I wanted, so it yeah, I felt successful. And what about going back to the um, brother of your friend, um, was that experience, given how young you were and that you didn't really know what was going on, was that experience a pleasant one? Did you feel, did you come out of it feeling like, oh my God, I've just been assaulted? Or did you mm -hmm. come about, out of it feeling like, oh, I got some attention and that was nice? Neither. I came out of that feeling yucky. And I couldn't mm. name why for like five years. Mm. Um, I mean, maybe a little less, but it was, it was years before I told my parents. And when I told them, I told them under the context of something yucky happened that I know wasn't supposed to be happening, but I only knew that maybe on some level gut reaction, I knew that, but also because of the way that he acted, you know, it was like, this is our secret. Don't tell your friend, you know, all this stuff. Mm. So I knew people didn't, talk to me that way. You know, we didn't have weird manipulative, like there was nobody else in my life doing that. And so I knew something about that was, was not supposed to be happening or that it was, uh, I knew there's something up, but I didn't really give it the context of like assault, honestly, until like 15 years later, maybe even later. But it, the first when I told my parents, it was like, Hey, a thing happened. And I think it shouldn't have, right? <laughs> and they were like, yes, that absolutely shouldn't have. Do you want to press charges? But at that point, we had already moved and I never saw him again. And it was like, I didn't want to talk to police or anything. You know, I was like 13, I think at this point. So, um, or maybe, maybe younger, but anyway, at that point, I just decided that it was done. And I always kind of had it in my head as like, yeah, that one kind of yucky thing that shouldn't have happened. But I didn't call it assault until many years later. Yeah. I'm curious because I know that there are a fair number of women who had some type of inappropriate or had an experience of inappropriate touch as children that at the moment that they had it, they weren't aware that it was inappropriate or maybe yeah. they were, but didn't completely understand what was going on and experienced some pleasure from it. Yeah. And then take that into their adult lives as, oh, my God, I'm a terrible person because this awful thing happened to me and I enjoyed it. Yes. Well, as 
I mean, I hear it all the time from clients, from friends uh, in different areas, like from, as you said, the TED Talk, I had lots of people giving me responses to that. So I do hear that all the time. Um, and it's so common and such an important thing to talk about. I think my personal experience, there wasn't really pleasure outside of his attention earlier in the day, which made that moment when it crossed that line, you know, from him being like, we're going to play a game. And I was like, I love playing games with you to hmm. like, to something that I was like, this makes my stomach feel hurty, you know, like it, <laughs> it, it shifted, but it wasn't. It certainly didn't feel like assault. I mean, if you'd asked me at that point, or even for like the next decade, what assault was, I'd be like, someone holds a gun to your, you know, back in an alleyway, and uh, and that's assault. And anything else is just like, I don't know, a weird, yucky thing that happened. So I think it's really important that we put language, like giving accurate language, to these sort of gray area moments. Because I was seven, I could not have consented. That is sexual assault. Um, but yeah, it absolutely didn't feel violent in any way, you know, because he was still being pleasant. I just, I crossed a line where I was like, I don't think we're supposed to be doing this and I don't hmm. really want to. Um, but that, that, you know, you don't have the skills to speak up at that point or whatever. Sure. So the second question that I ask is about um, your first memory of sexual shame. And I'm curious for you, if those two things, sexual desire and sexual shame are intertwined, how you worked that out for yourself? Hmm. I would say that experience shifted what had already been like a very present desire, again, not to have sex, but like the desire for connectivity in a way that is very similar to sex. Um, I would say that experience confused it all and made it intertwined with shame in a way that it never really untwined again until I did serious healing a few years ago. So can you talk some about that healing? Like what did you do and, and how did it help you? Um, <laughs> Yeah. What did I do? What didn't I do? We could start with that. Um, <laughs> so I think um, I think that I started to call it by its name, and that was a really big shift because up until that point, like I said, I, it had always been like, yeah, it was this weird thing that happened when I was little. It's not a big deal, though. It wasn't like a real assault, you know. Um, and so once I realized how many other women were having stories like this and got educated on what the language actually means and consent and all this other stuff. When I started getting educated, I started calling it what it was. And even that was terrifying. Like the first time I called it that to myself, I like had a meltdown. It's like, Holy shit. That's what that is. And I am going to have to start using that language now, if for no other reason than to, to show other women that we don't have to have had it you know, a gunpoint alleyway situation for our traumas to be valid. And so once I started getting more educated on trauma, I started pursuing healing of my own trauma. But that really only started when I called it trauma. Because up until that point, I felt like there was just like, I guess I just felt like I didn't deserve to have to heal from anything that silly, you know? Mm, yes. I, and so of course, up until that point, I hadn't done any healing. And in fact, even when I thought about it, I, I, 
I sort of thought about it from the perspective of like, well, I let it happen. You know, that's the price that I, that's the gift and the curse. I'm so attractive. People just have to touch me. You know, even when I was a child, it's just how it goes. Like I kind of had it all, all entangled in the narrative of who I am that certainly was very rich in shame. Um, and so when I started approaching it, like that was trauma, that's not who I am. Um, he, he was not allowed to do that and he did it anyway. So now what? And it started me down the path of really examining, I think my identity in a new way. Um, all of the parts of myself sexually and otherwise that I had created for myself based on that being not exactly my fault, but like just a part of me as opposed to something he did that he shouldn't have done. I think it's so important what you were saying about how assault is not just when a gun is pointed at your head. I see so much conversation now. I hear it with people I talk to. I see it online of, oh, this thing happened to me, but it's not really that bad. Other people have had it so yes. much worse. So I don't feel like I should be able to, I, sh I shouldn't have to talk about this. That's exactly it. I mean, if you read it's a so damaging, so damaging. If you read a newspaper article about some girl who got kidnapped for 15 years and just got released and was somebody's sex slave, you're like, okay, well, some dude touched me inappropriate, but like, who cares? You know, you just feel guilty for even having a story that like makes you feel weird because other people have it so much worse. And we put ourselves on a like spectrum of who deserves to heal from what kind of trauma and, and then nobody heals. Yes. I remember when I was in college going to a group for sexual abuse survivors and feeling like I didn't belong in that room mm -hmm. because these women all had these very clear memories. They had these long involved stories where they could recount everything that happened. And I just sat there and said, I don't remember what happened, but I know something happened. And because I couldn't recount it with chapter and verse, I felt like I didn't belong in that room. Uh, as you and I have discussed at length over mm. the last year, what I experienced was sexual abuse, but it didn't look like the kind of sexual abuse that other people experience. And so I went through a really long period of time right. thinking, I don't belong in those rooms. I must be the crazy one. Yeah, totally. And what happens a lot, I think, too, is that so maybe this was my first violation. It was the first notable violation. It certainly is the one that like sent my self-identity path down, you know, down a new lane, sexually speaking. But um, it was not the last, you know? And so a lot of things it's like, well, yeah, that happened. But if that hadn't happened, then the next hundred violations, which are tiny microaggressions and small moments throughout life, just being female, um, maybe they wouldn't have felt so yucky because I wouldn't have known what they could have become. Or maybe mm. they still would have. I really have no idea, no way of knowing. But for me, for sure, it wasn't just that. You know, It was every other little violation that followed. And they all had the context of like, I get, I get put in this position because I'm likable, because I'm cute and outgoing, and I like the attention. And so the, the price for that is that people don't see me as a, a full, you know, three-dimensional human being with uh, bodily autonomy or rights. They push them as far as they can, and it's my job to stop them whenever it's too much. 
or whatever, mm-hmm. you know? So like those little moments of boys doing little things, pushing violations in little ways, all of that um, had the, the first context as a baseline. So how did you, when you had, you know, quote unquote sex for the first time, penile penetration, Mm -hmm. was it something that was enjoyable to you? Was that a pleasurable experience? Uh, It was a very positive experience insofar it was my boyfriend. We had decided we'd been together for a while. He went way out of his way to be romantic and loving about it. Um, so it was a very, very positive experience. And sometimes when I hear other people's virginity stories, I'm like horrified and I just feel so grateful to this man, um, or this boy, I guess at the time, but (laughs) yeah, no, I didn't feel pleasure as in like the kind of pleasure that I'm capable of accessing now or even anywhere in that ballpark. Certainly not. But I took a lot of pleasure in, in knowing that I was desired and knowing that I was, sexy enough to have sex. You know, there was something about that that I loved. And I felt like I was, um, I felt very, yeah, I felt very sexy. (laughs) So I didn't exactly feel pleasure, but I was into it, you know? And I'd say that characterized most of the sex I had for the next 15 years. years. So how did you make that transition from feeling sexy to feeling sexual pleasure? Well, you won't be surprised to hear that it was in direct relationship to the healing from trauma. Um, no, really? <laughs> really. <laughs> so uh, it was all of it. It was all of the trauma healing stuff that I did, which includes like, you know, talk therapy stuff, as well as uh, a lot of reading about the physiological effects of trauma, a lot of processing in my uh, my own writing and um you know, different workshops I took. It it was all kinds of things culminating in a trip to Peru to do ayahuasca ceremonies to like what I thought was let go of the final, um, you know, to summit the final part of this thing when really it turns out that's not how it works. But uh, yeah, I did, I did everything I possibly could. Some of it very intentional. Some of it just throwing shit at the walls and seeing what stuck. Um, and some combination of all of it is how I ended up, what I call myself embodied now. I, I felt like I eventually found my way back into my body. And when that happened, I was able to play with sexual pleasure for the first time. Are you aching to explore new vistas of your sexuality? Do you hear me talk about concepts on this show and think it makes sense, but I need help applying it to my particular situation? That's where personalized sex and intimacy coaching comes in. When you work with me, I promise to help you feel safe exploring your sexuality. Together, we'll look at your needs and desires without judgment and help you figure out how to fulfill them. There is no single answer that's right for everyone, so I'm going to help you discover what's right for you. And we'll go at your pace. That's the pace that respects your emotional needs, your boundaries, and your nervous system. Because going too fast can send you into shutdown, while going too slow can be infuriating and exhausting. The goal is to find what's right for you. I work with clients who are motivated to explore many different areas of sexuality, including things like 
expressing your sexual desires to current or future partners, exploring if you might be queer, challenging body image insecurity in sexual relationships, dipping your toes into BDSM, exploring consensual non-monogamy, learning to date after a long time out of the dating pool, exploring your sexuality for later in life virgins, and so much more. I want you to have a deeply fulfilling, intimate life, and together, we can help you get there. For more information and to schedule your discovery call, visit leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. That's leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. If before the healing, you were having limited sexual pleasure, Mm -hmm. and after the healing work, you were having increased sexual pleasure, what was it that you discovered? Like, what, what are the feelings? What are the experiences? What have you found out about yourself that Mm. you bring into sex with you now? So many things. Um, Well, I'm going to go back. So the very first thing I ever did for my sexual healing was five years ago, I think. And it was a weightlifting, it was a vagina Kung Fu is what it was called, Kiminami. Um, <laughs> and it's like weightlifting for your vagina. And she talks about how all women can have, you know, squirting orgasms and all women can uh, just, you know, every, every delightful thing I'd ever wanted out of sex. She says that she teaches people to do it basically. And I was like, I am in, and I'd never invested. It was like $500 or something at the time, which is now hilarious to me, but it was the first thing I ever invested in. That was like, I'm just going to put money and find out how I can like have a more fulfilling sex life. And, um, I did not have a squirting orgasm or anything else that the other women in the group, there was hundreds of women in the group. They were all like, Oh my God, I had my first cervical orgasm. It was amazing. Or like everybody's having these crazy orgasms. And I was just like, I was on step one and I didn't even realize how far I had to go until that course. I kind of was like, yeah, I have good sex. In fact, I remember talking to my roommate at the time was telling her about it. And I was like, yeah, I I mean, I have great sex. I just wanted to like be better. And she was like, well, you don't have great sex. You don't come during sex. And I was like, I don't see the point. I have great sex and I don't come during sex, but those are not, I didn't see those two things as mutually exclusive in any way. Huh? I just, I thought I had great sex because I got so much pleasure from the performance and the validation and pleasing my partner. And just like I said, being sexy, I felt sexy. So I didn't see, I didn't see it like having bad sex. But now when I look back, I'm like, all of that was garbage. Like I had terrible (laughs) sex for years um, and I didn't know it. And I I hear that now from clients all the time. They're like, yeah, the sex is great. I just never want it. And I'm like, so what makes it so great? And they're like, well, you know, it's like not bad. It doesn't hurt or anything. (laughs) I'm like, great. (laughs) So your standards like mine were, they're so low, you know, they, that's kind of how we're taught. Women's pleasure should just basically be, I don't know. Yeah, it's I'm totally getting off track. But so the, um, the, the course taught me that I had a long way to go. And it was really interesting because I taught, I was looking at it from like a physiological perspective, like muscles, because I was a personal trainer and I was like, I want to strengthen my vaginal muscles so that maybe I can, you know, have these different kinds of orgasms. And what I realized is like, I couldn't feel any of my vaginal muscles. So no shit, I wasn't using them and I couldn't strengthen them. I, 
I couldn't feel them, you know? So like that really showed me that there was something more there to even heal and bother look at, um, that I might not have known had I not done that course. But also I was going through body work at the time because my, I had herniated discs in my spine and I was having body work and it was like my hip flexor and lower back, all these things. Um, and there was a point in working with this guy who I like allowed a man to work on me cause he just was magic. And I never would have ever allowed a body worker up in my groin, um, had he not really been helping me. Um, and he, he very, very gently brought me to a place where I even could let him show me what I needed, you know? Um, so I just remember this one time and, and I was like, it's so weird. You know, I'm like making anxious chit chat while he's working on me. I'm like, I don't even know. I don't even know why that muscle's so tight. It's so weird. You know, whatever. And he's just kind of like, he was super calming presence. He was like, really, Jesse, you can't think of a single reason this part of your body while he's like up in my, you know, groin. He's like, you can't think of a single reason this part of your body would need to tense up to protect you. And it was just like, yeah floodgates opened like oh my god I didn't think about it that way but I can immediately see that these muscles have been protecting me for a a long time and my body had been protecting me and I couldn't feel the muscles that I didn't have access to because other things were kicking in to protect me and it just it made so much sense from a muscular perspective and it's really what set me down like let me go learn about some shit because I genuinely didn't realize how far I was from having great sex at, at the beginning of that. And I think it was, it got a lot worse before it got better. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I want to ask you, you said you couldn't feel your vaginal muscles. And there's a part in my brain that's going, I wonder what she means by that. And I can imagine a whole lot of women yeah. saying, wait, what does it mean to feel your vaginal muscles? Yeah. So can you talk about that? Sure. Well, something I'm very passionate about now is informing people that our vaginas are made out of muscles, which I didn't know until that point because people don't talk about that. Um, and muscles can get stronger, obviously. And also they can totally go offline, meaning your brain can't find them to make them fire, which some people might have the experience of if you've ever done like a weird you know, you're trying to learn a dance move, like if you try to twerk or something, and you're like, how come I can't do what she's doing? Like, sometimes there's, it's because certain muscles aren't firing, your brain can't find them to move them. But with practice, if you continue to practice, you get better at it, and then you can strengthen those muscles. The same thing is true with the muscles in the vagina, because it's basically just a muscular tunnel in there, you know, Um, it is a canal, the birth canal, right? And so the first time that I did this exercise where I put my fingers up and then I put a jade egg up in my vagina and I was trying to feel the different quadrants. Kim and Ami had me focusing on like the upper right and then the lower right and the upper left and lower left or whatever. And I was like, okay, so I feel literally nothing at any point. I feel my fingers, but I couldn't feel it from the inside until I put enough pressure on the walls that it was like, I felt some pressure. But I couldn't just, like, if I was stroking it with my fingers, I couldn't feel any of that. And likewise, when I put the egg up there, other people were like, oh, my God, it, you know, it's so sensual. It feels so good. And I was like, I could, I could put it up there or someone else could put it up there and I wouldn't know it. You know what I mean? Like, I, I had nothing, no sensory feedback from that area. Um, but what I was doing was this practice daily, 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 over and over and over, um, And eventually I started getting sensation and I was like, oh my God, she's right. Like you can build sensation. I literally, the whole time I was like, this is so stupid. I don't know what she's talking about. Um, So is this different than Kegels? Uh, Yeah, well, kind of. I mean, so 
of course I tried to do Kegels, but you can't do Kegels if you don't know how to connect to those muscles. And I actually mm-hmm. remember I, I was such a difficult client for Craig, my body worker, dear sweet <laughs> Craig. I love him so. Um, but I remember him being like, well, you know, we were working on something and, and he was like, see if you can like lift your pelvic floor, see if you can like squeeze your pelvic floor. And I was like, um, I don't know what that means. And he was like, okay, just like do a regular Kegel. And I was like, okay, I don't know what that means. And he's like, try to like pee, but don't pee. And then that muscle, how's that? And I was like, I literally don't know what the fuck you're talking about. So like, I mean, my brain obviously knew I knew what a Kegel was, but I couldn't make my body do anything related to what he wanted. And so he was basically making the argument that like my hip flexor and lower back needed to, to come into play to help protect me or help move me because my pelvic floor wasn't doing any work. And he wanted me to start strengthening it, but I couldn't even start. I literally couldn't start because I had absolutely no idea how to find that muscle. So, yeah. And I, even now I've done years of work, physical and emotional, but like, I would say that I get so mad when I read articles that are like, just do Kegels. Cause I'm like, does everybody else just know what that means and like know how to do it? Cause I really didn't. And I felt a lot of shame about the fact that I didn't. And I always thought about it. It was like, I, am, I just pictured the tight, like, opening of the vagina, tightening that. That's what I always pictured. And whenever I'd hear someone say, like, such an, you know, you want to keep your vagina tight or, like, well, I guess that's not usually how people put it, but you know what I mean, um, that I always pictured it just being the opening, that you just squeezed the opening, but I never realized that, like, the entire rest of your vagina is a muscle that moves or can move if your brain can find it. Huh. Well, that's fascinating. And I feel like I've just been um, given my new bit of homework. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I have any idea what any of that is. And I know that, um, you know, when I've had um, sacred spot massage, or yoni massage, and I've had it with a few different people, and they'll feel around the different quadrants of the vagina and say, how does this feel? How does this feel? And I'll say, I, I don't know. I, yeah, I don't really feel. I think anything. it's exactly the same thing, um, yeah. and I actually think it's very common because, frankly, the cultural narrative around female sexuality is that we are just a hole to fill. We're just like this passive receptacle for a penis, you know. And the idea behind that is that we don't have to do anything. Our pleasure isn't really important, but if we get some, that's fine. But it's like completely not at all the sexual experience that it can be if you're active, if your muscles are active, if your brain is connected, if you're fully aroused, there's so much more to it. Um, But I had never thought of it that way. I think most women are not encouraged to think of it that way. So I had always just seen myself, like my role in sex was just to like look sexy and have a hole to fill. I Hmm. never thought of it as doing anything with my vagina, (laughs) you know? Yes. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. (laughs) So what is your experience of sex now? Well, uh, it certainly varies. It's not like I'm having like mind blowing, you know, screaming orgasms every time there, there's so many factors to this that like context and, um, when I'm able to be really present, all that stuff matters a lot. And it, it certainly creates massive variety, but I feel like embodied is the best word. I feel like when I look back on the sex I was having, I was not actually in my body for it. I was either watching myself, thinking about how I looked, putting on a performance, worrying about their pleasure, thinking about 
I don't know, the grocery list, like totally not involved at all. Um, so for like the best of the old sex that I would have, it was just satisfying because he was really into it. And the worst of it, neither of it, well, maybe he was, I don't know, but I wouldn't have even been like turned on by that. I just would have been literally a passive receptacle. Uh, and yeah, none of that. I feel like now my standards are so much higher. Even the worst sex nowadays is like, I'm there in my body for it and I want it and I'm turned on because I just wouldn't have that kind of sex anymore. So getting to a place of actually being aroused is a huge difference um, because you can't feel much when you're not fully aroused. And now I know my sexual response cycle, which is all just stuff I've learned and fascinates me. And also I'm, I honor my body's signals. So like if I'm not into it, I won't do it. And that is something that wasn't true before. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I just, I feel so much. That's the big difference. And it's kind of a hard, you know, you can't really explain that to someone because they don't know what I felt before. I don't know what they feel, but I feel so much more like sensation sexually now um, that, yeah, it's just, it's way, way different. I know that you are a wealth of resources. So are there any particular resources about sex and sexuality that you would like to recommend to people? Hmm. Um, Yeah. The book Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski is like, I think this should just be a required reading for anybody who has a vagina and anybody who sleeps with people who has a vagina. (laughs) Yes. should literally be required reading. You should not be allowed to have sex until you read it. Um, because that explains all this stuff, like the sexual response cycle and the fact that your vagina has muscles and what it means to get <laughs> turned on. It's like all this stuff that we really skipped in sex ed. Um, it's the best that I know of. There's also a book called Becoming Cliterate, which is not as, I don't know, it, it's a little cheesy to me at times, but it's super, super useful in terms of guiding people into, guiding women, into recognizing that Um, for many of us, we've bought into this myth that we should have orgasms by penetration and that that is absolute nonsense. So she really like breaks down why that's nonsense and teaches you how to, (laughs) uh, honor the fact that, and there's a whole chapter in that one actually for men as well. She's like, just tear this chapter out and give it to your male partner. <laughs> um, because men also, they think, you know, like if we're not having these screaming orgasms from penetration, that there's something wrong with them or they're, they're magical dicks, you know, like they, they think that's the standard and then they get their feelings hurt and then we end up faking orgasms and then, you know, it's like this whole cycle. So she really breaks it down in a way that I think is amazing um, so that everybody can have more fun in bed. Friends, if you love these conversations, I would love your help to keep them going. There are three ways you can participate. Two are free, and one is for listeners who've got a few extra dollars each month. Number one, take a screenshot of this episode right now and post it to your Instagram stories. Tag me in your post, and if it's public, I'll reshare and send you a personal thank you. Word of mouth is the best way to build buzz for an independent show like Good Girls Talk About Sex. And the more people listening, the healthier our collective sexual experiences will become. Number two, don't want the whole world to know you're listening to a show about sex? I get it. 
Perhaps you heard something in this episode that reminds you of a past conversation with a friend or something you wish your partner knew. Send them a link to this episode and a quick message about why you think they should listen. And number three, if you have the resources to support the sex positive work I do, I'd be grateful for your support at Patreon. Donating the equivalent of a fancy cup of coffee each month might not make a big difference to you, but it makes a huge difference to me. There's absolutely no contract or obligation. You can cancel at any time. Plus, I donate 10% of all proceeds to ARC Southeast, an organization that supports women in the Southeast United States to access reproductive services that are currently being legislated out of existence. It's easy to become a patron at patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex. And one more thing, there is a treasure trove of additional audio at Patreon that's free to everyone. You don't even need to have a Patreon account to access them. Just go to patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex to start listening. I appreciate every one of you, whether you're a client, a patron, a social media follower, or a silent listener. I trust you to know what's right for you. Thank you for being here. Now, let's get back to the show. Before we let Jesse go, let's do the quick five. Five quick questions that we'd usually be too polite to ask anyone. Favorite sex toy? Oh my God, I just bought one the other day. It's called the Womanizer. So it's totally at the top of my list right now because it's awesome. I'm so jealous. <laughs> I, I experienced one once and it was, it was magical, but I don't actually mm, own one. Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> hair down there or bare? Uh, I'm lasered, which is actually an interesting thing because in the body acceptance world, sometimes I wish I could just grow a big bush and rock it and like, (laughs) I can't. (laughs) Are you a single orgasm girl or a multi-orgasmic girl? You know, I've actually wondered about this. What counts as multiple, like within what time frame? I don't know. I've literally had this debate with myself. I mean, I have friends who can just go one after the other, but I also wonder if it counts, if it's like, okay, so we're going to go get a sandwich and then come back and go again. Yeah. Like what in one sex session, if that session takes all afternoon, then I guess multiple, but if it means what I imagine it means is like within three minutes you have, you know, two orgasms, then I guess probably not. We should get a defin- we should get an official definition on that somewhere though. That's a really good idea. <laughs> <laughs> do you swallow or not during a blowjob? I do. Do you prefer orgasms from penetration or clit stimulation? I have never had one from penetration, so I, I have to say clit. All right. Do you like to be penetrated while, like, is it more powerful if you're penetrated with the clit stimulation or are they just totally different? It's, it's far more powerful if penetration is a part of the session. It doesn't have to be at the same moment necessarily for orgasm. Excellent. All right. 
I am so happy to have this time to talk with you. And thank you so much. And for everybody listening, I highly encourage you to go check out Jessie's website, her Instagram feed, her Facebook page, all the things. Follow Jessie. She's incredible. She has helped me to radically change my life. I would not be doing any of the things that I'm doing right now were it not for Jessie and our work together and her support. So Jessie, thank you so much. Thank you. It was awesome to be on here. I honestly could just keep talking about this all day. So I was super fun. I'm down for it. That's it for today. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or if you're using another podcast app, go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash goodgirls. And remember, there's a treasure trove of audio extras available for free at Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash goodgirlstalkaboutsex. While listening to those extras is free, producing this show is not. If my work is meaningful to you, and you have a few dollars to support it each month, I will gratefully accept your patronage at Patreon. I donate 10% of all Patreon proceeds to ARC Southeast, an organization that supports women in the Southeast United States to access reproductive services that are increasingly difficult to obtain. Find out more and become a community member at patreon.com forward slash goodgirlstalkaboutsex. Show notes and transcripts for this episode are at goodgirlstalk.com. Follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at goodgirlstalk for more sex positive content. If you have a question or comment about anything you've heard on the show, call and leave a message at 720-GOOD-SEX. Good Girls Talk About Sex is produced by me, Leah Carey, and edited by Gretchen Kilby. I have additional administrative support from Lara O'Connor and Maria Franco. Transcripts are produced by Jan Asiello. Before we go, I want to remind you that the things you may have heard about your sexuality aren't true. You are worthy. You are desirable. You are are not broken. As your sex and intimacy coach, I will guide you in embracing the sexuality that is innately yours, no matter what it looks like. To set up your free discovery call, go to leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. Until next time, here's to your better sex life. <laughs>